This presentation is from Succeeding in Design 2022, Sydney. So good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. My name is Nicole Jess, and uh, I'm going to talk to you today about ethical fading at the clinical interface. Before I do, I'd love to just dive into, uh, like before I dive into the definitions and kind of components of this, I'd just like to talk to you a little bit about the healthcare space and what it's like designing for that sector. Um, some of you may be working in that space, some may have experience, some may not, and some may have absolutely no interest in the healthcare space at all. But the interesting thing is that all of us, no matter where we sit on that spectrum of interest or engagement, we're all engaged or affected by the healthcare sector in one way or another. So with that in mind, let's consider this. You're in a hospital and you're in the bed and it's, it's you, it's me that the thing is happening to, it's the eye that's there having this experience. To the nurse looking after you, you may be Veronica or Sam in the bed with the broken ankle. To the nurse unit manager, you're bed five who's uh, just pushed the ward over the quotas to say the bed manager, your bed five who's being moved to ortho soon, to medical records, your MRN 57325, to patient services, you're a public or private patient, and then to local, state or national health, you're a consumer of healthcare services. So within that one system, you as one person has become a number of different things. And by that endpoint of consumer, you're essentially a faceless, nameless representation of a situation. So when we think about that, we need to consider that across that, that, that component of becoming nameless, it really opens up this, this area for decisions to be made that are not based on a human experience, essentially. They're based on a number and a demographic. And that's where ethical fading can come into play. So if we look at ethical fading itself, it's quite elusive in both definition and observation. So many definitions kind of flounder around associations and outcomes of ethical fading, but it's most simply described as the act of an organization in dehumanizing a person or human-centered event in order to reduce the impacts or the sense of severity of the decisions associated with that uh, person or the people in that event. For me personally, ethical fading has been most frequently observed as upper management, uh, ignoring the pleas of clinicians who are on the clinical interface. And so these are clinicians that are really simply pleading for resources and services that allow them to complete their job effectively. And often the reasons that they're not provided with those resources is due to um, procurement contracts and budgets and things that don't really factor in that individual experience that the clinician is face-to-face um, -face with. So I've experienced that firsthand and I've honestly watched in awe as clinicians have taken it upon themselves to overcome those deficits. I've seen uh, staff call other hospitals to get resources, call pharmacies to get medications, to call local stores to get uh, nappies for neonatal wards. And it's honestly amazing to see how staff will go above and beyond to compensate for things that have been made, decisions that have been made outside that scope. So it was my experience of uh, ethical fading firsthand that really drove me to, be, to move into UX. 
in that clinical space, it's incredibly hard to create change and it's incredibly hard to have that voice heard. And that's what really drove me into becoming a UX researcher and strategist who focuses on the healthcare space. So if we look, oops, sorry, let me just go back one. If we dive into the concept of ethical fading a little bit further, um, ethical fading itself has this distancing effect that kind of acts like a buffer between the right and wrong of a situation. And it acts uh, to disperse individuals' responsibility and involvement in relation to that event, specifically the negative outcomes. And it occurs at an organisational level. So it's essentially this grey zone that, consciously or not, individuals in those upper levels um, within that group, they agree to kind of compromise cer certain social and ethical uh, standards in order to meet a goal, be it a business goal, most prominently. Uh, so if we look into the healthcare sector, ethical fading is often experienced by the public as poor clinical services. So that may be uh, excessive wait times, it may be people being discharged before they're actually ready, and these events create a lot of stress and anxiety for the patient themselves and their loved one. For actual clinical staff, it can look like unsafe staffing, uh, insufficient ratio, like uh, client uh, clinician to patient ratios, lack of resources, excessive overtime, um, and practices that are suggested to clinicians that actually are against policy and often common sense. Um, so if we zoom even further into the clinical setting and you have that relationship between the clinician and the patient, it's a much closer distance. There's less physical, psychological distance between those two individuals. But within that space, a lesser degree of ethical fading can occur, and that's called moral disengagement. And there is these, the lower levels of, of ethical fading at the individual level uh, has three components, which is psychological numbing, self-deception, and when they're both unaddressed results in, in moral disengagement. So if we look into those a little bit more. So psychological numbing is a reflective response that occurs as a protective mechanism, often in uh, response to repeated exposure to stressful or traumatic events. An example of this might be uh, a clinician who constantly sees a, a patient in distress but is unable to actually act to resolve that distress. So given the nature of clinical work, you can understand why this might start to develop quite early in a, a clinician's career, as it acts as a kind of uh, buffering to that um, uh, empathic pain that can come in that situation. And this leads through to self-deception. So self-deception is a process by which we start to develop new narratives that create this kind of bypass of the ethical components of a situation and they work to kind of disguise the moral implications of decisions. So this essentially allows decisions that are predominantly uh, kind of, so they, they're focused kind of on self-preservation by the clinician side of things, but they can appear quite self-interested. Um, for example, if we think about that clinician that's unable to uh, resolve the, the person in distress's issue and they've seen this over and over, this may begin to create a story in that clinician's mind where they deceive themselves with the notion that, okay, look, this patient's not actually in my allocation and they're waiting to be transferred to another ward anyway. 
Um, so this new narrative starts that actually kind of disconnects them from this felt sense of responsibility uh, kind of towards the situation. And that can kind of play out in, in uh, phrases like, you know, I can't help the person because I'm already over patient quota and uh, they're actually awaiting transfer. So that's, that's the end of my kind of engagement of my responsibility. So really self-deception um, can be kind of summed up I don't know if anyone's familiar with Joan Didion, but the saying, she has a, a book, it's called The Stories We Tell Ourselves in Order to Live. And that's really the role that self-deception plays in the clinical field. And as I said, unaddressed psychological numbing and so, uh, self-deception leads to this uh, disengagement from normal and conventional ethical standards that due to kind of this shit start that uh, in, experience that starts to be shared, um, there's an unsaid agreement of this new narrative. Um, so those new realities that are being created through the narrative start to be assumed to be real, and that's known as moral disengagement. So this might look like that clinician that we're talking about. They can't uh, uh, actually address the individual's pain. They're kind of like, you know, they're being moved to another ward anyway. They're not within my scope of practice. So it's this process of, of disengaging from that situation and minimising the fact that actually there's another human in their space that's suffering, and it's that buffering. Um, so the person essentially foregoes responsibility that they have in order to reduce this kind of uh, a sense of engagement or a sense of responsibility because they've come to a point where they've started to feel powerless to create change. So moral disengagement in the clinical setting is largely functional, but it is also protective. And it allows those staff to keep showing up again and again in those situations where they can't often create change and they're not being facilitated to do that from above. So uh, the environments that lead to that often happen one slight digression at a time. It's not, not, not often a big event that creates that, that, but it's one, one, one event by one, one, one individual that adds up over time to actually then look, when we look at a clinical setting and we say, what on earth happened there? How did that start happening? So we need to consider there are so many people in the healthcare industry and they're all under an enormous amount of pressure and it happens one tiny bit at a time. And that's essentially how we see clinicians who have spent years and years and years studying to serve people in need and they're actually at the interface and we start to see them demonstrating uh, behaviours of moral disengagement. So what role does UX play in the complex clinical settings and how can we understand and remedy ethical fading with projects in the healthcare space but also beyond that? Um, as, re as UX researchers, strategists and designers, we actually have a really unique opportunity to act as a stopgate to the perpetuation of ethical fading. And that's not only in the healthcare sector, it's actually across the board. So while that might sound like a really, really massive statement, there's a lot of things that you're probably doing already that are actually having that uh, a function, but it's probably just the why hasn't been put through an ethical fading lens. So let's look further into that. So what's the problem? The first step is really exploring the problem space. So this is really, really important, obviously. 
As previously mentioned, the problem space in healthcare, it's often assumed to be between the patient and the clinician. That's the space we hear of most of the problems coming from. But the big issue with healthcare services in delivery is most often that clinicians are not actually being provided what they, are, what they need from this end to make this interaction between the patient occur in a way that is actually aligned with best practice and ideal um, patient care delivery. So not knowing that, if we don't scope the space properly and we assume that the problem is between uh, clinician and patient, it's easy to jump in with solutions and we assume, okay, maybe what we'll do is we'll design um, some sort of software that uh, can track when there's deficits in resources and then we'll just feed it up the line and voila, all, everything will get what they want and the, the problem will be solved. But these kind of problems, uh, these kind of uh, solutions and software is really already in place and it's actually an issue of closing that gap off that makes those type of solutions ineffective. So because there's no feedback from that type of reporting, clinicians then start to feel morally disengaged because they're like, I'm reporting this, I'm reporting the outcome and I'm getting no feedback and no improvement. So it's really important um, to acknowledge that although that might seem like the obvious solution, it's, it, we need to look at the problem more broadly. So if we come back um, and scope more widely, uh, in a, with a lens that's kind of looking through a, a risk assessment for ethical fading, um, we can see that the problem space is primarily between clinicians and organisations. And that means that while the client might believe that the end user is the patient, the, and, and of course the patient is a really important component of, of the picture and the cohort, the actual clinician is the actual user that we need to be looking at. They're the one delivering this service. So when we're looking at structuring our research cohorts, we really need to make sure that we bring clinicians to the forefront of all components of the project. And doing this often, you know, people say, but what about the patients? By doing this, you're not ignoring the patients. You're actually looking at a key functional delivery point to that patient's care. And by ignoring it, we're actually really ignoring a key point of what delivers um, those services. So by putting the clinicians front of uh, front, but equally in the actual scope, the cohort, we don't only end up identifying the needs of that clinical cohort, but we're able to uh, look at where the pain points have increased the ethical fading and the proximity between upper management and uh, resources to actually result in that finding. And you'll find if you address those pain points, your patient outcomes will improve, improve by default without even addressing them directly. So breaking this down as designers, at the start of a, a project, healthcare project or otherwise, we really need to implement that thorough design research practice into a full, like a full scoping to all players in the problem space. And that's especially important if you're new to working in uh, the healthcare space and you're, it's very, very complex and it's really loaded with nuances. Um, some important nuances to kind of think of in regard to healthcare are behaviours that are associated with ethical fading and moral disengagement. And some of them to just be aware of are euphemisms, um, also making palliative comparisons and also shifting blame. So in your research, if you're, if you're picking up behaviours like this, there are key points to start thinking, you know what, I'm going to dig deeper to this. 
because clinicians have this callus. It's what keeps them safe in the industry. And we need to see when they're coming up in research and when to dip down lower and having sensitivity that that's, that's a psychological buffer that, that is a protective mechanism and knowing how to go below that. So with regard to scope, um, if the prescribed sc scope by the client is that of clinician and patient, um, we really need to explore as what clinician means. It's an incredibly broad title and within each component of that title, there's an incredible hierarchy. So, oh, sorry, I was just not sure I was on the right side then for a moment. Um, so we need to think about who we're engaging and when. Uh, so remembering that senior staff are often engaged in decision-making, um, but they're not often on the, one, uh, the ones actually at that interface in a more constant way. Um, so looking at the proximity of that hierarchy uh, downwards. And also consider non-clinical staff and how they feed into the clinician service journey as well. Um, that can include, you know, really think broadly, think about supply chains, uh, record management, staffing, and then look at the underlying themes between those, which is often management and budget. So they need to be considered in. So, so much of the clinician's role is really driven by decisions that happen above them. So scoping really needs to bring those decision makers into the actual um, scoping project. With the, with the point in mind that we're trying to reduce proximity from upper management to the pain point. We need that, that proximity reduced because the proximity is where ethical fading is creeping in. So in saying that, we need to map out where the problem space actually sits. So where, where management sits between our clinical interface and our patient and clinician cohort. And that will really help you define those gaps really clearly. Um, so it's also important to remember that scoping exercises like this, as I was saying earlier, um, may actually bring uh, participants into the scope that have not been considered uh, within the scope. And as designers, it's really up to us to highlight the importance of including peripheral participants that may be considered out of scope and really push for ways of finding extended time or budget to include them because it's, not, it's, it's often not as simple as, you know, key players. Wow, five minutes. <laughs> okay, so um, we need to look at reducing proximity, as I've said before. Um, and as UX designers, we're in a really unique posi position to bridge that gap. Um, and we all know the power of narrative for storytelling and how important that is. Um, but we may not see the ethical weight that comes with that, which is incredibly important. Um, when it comes to addressing uh, issues of ethical fading and proximity in the healthcare space, we, bring, we need to bring the decision makers to the, that actual interface. And if that can be done physically, fantastic. There is nothing better than someone seeing what clinicians are dealing with, what is actually happening when you have a patient in need and you can't serve them. But that's not always possible. So the responsibility of us then is to reduce that proximity by bringing the story to them. And narrative is an incredibly important uh, tool in that. So aspects of narrative that are really important are point of view, perspective, and language. Um, and within these components, ethical fading can really hide away.
So consider um, how exploration of the client's point of view dictates how others view them. So for example, and how, well, how that actually leads into the narratives they have. Often the client will be speaking from a third person where the patient's actually speaking from a first person and we need to bring them closer together. So because how, uh, you know, how we view people in a given situation is how we view ourselves in that situation. So bringing awareness to that point of view of all, uh, all players is super important. And that leads to perspective, uh, which dictates how we label things. So a really classic example of this in healthcare at the moment is the label of what we call someone who consumes healthcare. So, um, the, you know, you're in the bed, you're not well, and you're considered a patient most of the time. This is a label that's been used since the 14th century and is preferred by both uh, clinicians and patients themselves. But up higher in the healthcare system, there's a push to, to rename this person as a consumer. Now, as a clinician in the past, there is no way I would walk up to a bedside and consider this person someone who's a consumer choosing to be there buying a service. It's not what, what that relationship is. But you can see how that proximity allows that the, uh, the government, et cetera, to think this person is consuming services. So that's a really great example of, um, of that. I'm sorry, I'm whipping through now because I realize I'm quite short on time. <laughs> great, thank you. <laughs> so mappings are really uh, another great way to demonstrate proximity. Um, and while we largely see uh, mapping of user journeys in that define phase of the, the design process, it's actually a really great tool to use in the discovery phase to plot yourself and the scope and your clients as well. Um, so that might actually, with regard to your clients, you may be able to plot their assumptions of, their, of the client and their proximity. Um, but there's also um, aspects that allow you to then plot yourself. So what that will allow you to do is see where you may also ethically fade in order to bend to client needs, which is incredibly important to identify. We all want our clients to be satisfied, but it's really important to present ethically and to carry the message forward how you've actually received it. Okay. So personally, I find that if um, I've been presented with a scope and I've tried to push the boundary out to include people that uh, may be on the peripheries and that's been denied, I always make sure that I identify that within the pack. And that might be through, personally, what I do is I put a scope uh, project limitations section at the beginning of the package and I introduce there, these are the limitations and this is the impact that those limitations have and then suggest how further work may be done to address those so that you're handing over in a fashion that ensures that the ethics are understood of the project and they're not just falling into the shadows. Finally, if we look at collaboration, so who's on board? It's very, very common in the health space when recruiting for people to say, Frontline staff are just way too hard to contact. Let's just design around them. And that does not work. You could, there's so many times that the interface will be uh, presented with a new um, piece of software or a new piece of equipment that looks great. And there's all these great ideas in it, but actually the clinicians have not been consulted. So it, it, uh, it tends to either be not used properly or half used and then doesn't get integrated. So welcoming all levels of uh, clinicians into the design process at the point of 
the, the very beginning and through the collaborative process. And knowing who to engage and when does require some understanding of the healthcare sector and its internal structuring. But again, ask your people, ask the cohorts, who should I be speaking to about this? Because that will come through for you from those. And again, closing that loop off with all engagements. If you're engaging in the clinical field, acknowledge what has come from that and feed it back. If there's nothing going to be developing forward from the research you've done or the designs you've done, feed that back as well. It's really important to include uh, clinicians in that loop to understand what I have said has been heard, but there's not a solution at this point of time, rather than just speaking into a void. So while I've largely focused on ethical fading in the clinical space today, ethical fading and moral disengagement, unfortunately, is everywhere. Everywhere that humans interact and make decisions, especially when there's a hierarchy involved. So in, re in that closing off, if I'm to, to take you away from this session with a few takeaways. So ethical fading occurs from the top down. It comes from the top and results in moral disengagement on the individual level. It's our role as designers to really use thorough research design practices to scope and map in order to understand the complexities the internal hierarchies and proximities within those sectors. Uh, we need to be mindful of the language that indicates and facilitates ethical fading. And as designers, we really need to ensure that the words that we share, that are shared with us from participants, are carried through in their authentic form. So that they really carry the tone and perspective that they were delivered to us in. Uh, it's not about making it convenient, it's about carrying that voice forward. Uh, further, we also need to ensure that our own words are in regards to report creation and uh, any sort of written content are really carefully considered with respect to their capacity to reduce or create that proximity that can uh, then welcome ethical fading in there. And really be aware that our words breathe space into uh, that, that void where, where uh, unethical practices can, can sneak in. And finally, we really need to be courageous and willing to take that ethical stance and push for inclusivity and engagement with stakeholders so that we ensure that collaboration and co-design occurs across the project with the right people. So with all that in mind, I really wholeheartedly encourage you to dive into projects in the health space. It can feel overwhelming and complex and perhaps even like too confronting, but I can tell you it's incredibly rewarding. And when you start to see things that you've designed playing out in the sector and making a difference, it's just deeply rewarding. If any of you find yourself in projects um, and you're kind of swimming in the soup, I am always open to a LinkedIn contact and I'm more than happy to help you uh, navigate your way through the project. So thank you so much for your time and uh,